Brett Leonard, and I'm here with, virtually with my son, Shannon Leonard, and actually physically IRL with my brother, Greg Leonard, here uh, in Venice, California. So uh, we're going to be speaking today about a couple things we had talked about in our last podcast, which was accessibility and inclusivity in the internet. My brother, Greg, is involved with some things there. And so we're going to start out with just asking you the question, Greg, in the question of what the F is the metaverse, is inclusivity and accessibility in the context of interaction with humans in the metaverse? Hello, everybody. An interesting thing that's been kind of coming to the fore as all this develops is the concept of what's known as digital accessibility. And that is for people with varying disabilities to be able to access the technology and these digital tools that are kind of evolving. My entry point into this was I have a company called Ava Inclusivity that creates digitally accessible, customized virtual tours. Uh, initially, we uh, had gotten a job from the city of Los Angeles to create a accessible uh, tour for a very historic house called the Frank Lloyd Wright uh, Hollyhock House. And then the pandemic happened and I started looking at the landscape of how virtual tours were being utilized in different verticals of society, you know, the, the adoption of them through public institutions like colleges and universities. Uh, they're certainly been used in the real estate sector for many, many years. And uh, retail has started to embrace them. And it became this kind of also view into, you know, it's been called the the metaverse, the emergence of the use of digital environments for many, uh, many purposes. I realized that these tours, which represent kind of what I considered a new realm of public space, uh, were not accessible for a lot of people who needed, for example, one of the main tenets of uh, digital accessibility is keyboard navigation. Uh, there's a lot of people who have got motor skill issues that makes it very difficult for them to use mouse, uh, trackpads, that type of thing. So they have to use a keyboard to navigate through digital environments. That simple barrier into a lot of these digital environments uh, becomes also a barrier for people to be included in a lot of the things that are developing uh, within this metaverse right now. So I've been spending the last... Uh, 19, 20 months uh, developing, taking what we have built in terms of our uh, navigation engine for our customized tours and making a public employee solution for existing mass market uh, virtual tours that are out in the marketplace so uh, they would be accessible to, to all. So in a way, what you're doing this for is for the part of the metaverse that actually already exists, this idea of yeah. virtual tours. And, you know, this has been around now for a number of years and companies like Matterport have come to the fore uh, in that area. So, you know, it's really interesting because it obviously makes a ton of sense that we need to, you know, deal with inclusivity and accessibility, but it's like one of the last things I think a lot of people would think about. What's the market size of the people that need uh, accessibility? Well, it's, it, it, the statistics are actually pretty amazing. Uh, almost a quarter of the world's population uh, has some level of disability. And as the baby boomer generation, which is a huge demographic ages, you're going to see increasing numbers of people who have mobility issues and have to uh, use uh, accessibility technology to function. So it's a, a huge market. And the one thing about these virtual tours that was a kind of a pivot point for me realizing how they kind of fit into the larger metaverse narrative is all a virtual tour is is a digital twin 
Right. It's just a, it's, it's, you know, it's a creating of a, of a digital environment that people, you will in this case, will utilize to uh, tour physical spaces. Now, these digital twins are going to be used or are increasingly being used uh, in many, many uses besides tours. I mean, they're, they're going to be used for training purposes, for all kinds of things in, in terms of people's jobs and uh and remote work, remote work, all that kind of stuff, training. Yeah. Uh, so you have to have, you have to provide an accessibility pathway into these uh, digital environments. You know, I, I, we have an advisor who is a, a man who has been in the kind of disability advocacy space for most of his adult life. He's been in a wheelchair for the last 30 years and how he likens it is, you know, these digital environments that are being built is we're basically building the new architecture. Yeah. So hmm. we've spent, you know, uh, centuries building the old architecture and have only recently started retrofitting a lot of that older architecture with things like wheelchair ramps and such to allow access. Well, we have the ability now from the kind of, yeah. uh, from the inception of from the, the inception yeah. of the metaverse to actually build these, you know, accessibility into uh, the design. So that is a, it's a very real and very interesting um, thing to, to think about. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts, Shannon? You know, market standpoint, it's obviously a very large market, but also just the fact that as humans, again, if we want to have a positive forward thinking metaverse, we want a place that is accessible to all. And that's truly democratized that way. Yeah. Well, I'd be interested to hear Greg's thoughts on, on where it is now and, and, and the future of it. Cause right now, a lot of VR headsets, and augmented reality devices are not even, you know, very accessible for able-bodied people <laughs> right, just exactly. because, because they're sometimes hard to wear or they're clunky or they get hot and they heat up. And so we're still trying to just make this technology accessible. So it, it seems really important. I mean, there's a lot of, there was an article published in Digiday. The headline was, as the virtual world takes shape, experts caution that metaverse builders to prioritize accessibility. Sure. Um, because we need this to, you know, to really, to, to be open. And this is something where the internet took a long time. You know, there's whole startups and whole companies dedicated to making websites more accessible. And and there's a lot of different problems with, with, with metaverse technology, which could be virtual reality or augmented reality that, that need to be addressed. But at the same time, there's the ability to actually augment the world to adapt to people's disabilities. Yeah. Um, so my, which I think is, which I think is, is hopeful. But my question for Greg is, is what, where do you think we are now in terms of, and, and this encompasses digital accessibility and the metaverse technology. And then we're, where do we need to go? Like, what needs to be improved? You know, it's interesting. I, I've noticed that there, especially within the last year or so, there's been an increasing kind of attention and actual kind of investment going towards accessibility in, in, into digital accessibility solutions. And as you said, there's an entire industry uh, based around kind of website accessibility. Um, you know, there is the, yeah. uh, the Americans with Disability Act which has traditionally been applied towards physical spaces, you know, the you know, wheelchair ramps into buildings, public buildings and such. But the Department of Justice just created a kind of a guideline that, you know, they're suggesting, and I think this will eventually be followed up probably legislatively with the guidelines that, no, you know, web experiences, web interfaces, 
need to be uh, digitally accessible too. Um, and in a lot of parts of Europe, you've already seen um, that kind of being legislated into law. You know, I was surprised when, you know, we started uh, building the experience for the Hollyhock House. We were very fortunate. We worked with some very good people on the Department of Disability here in Los Angeles. And we also reached out and had consultants from the disability community that were just invaluable to us. And, you know, I never considered myself naive in terms of, you know, uh, the barriers sometimes people can face, but there's still to see such institutionalized barriers erected against people who are differently abled. And the fact that it still persists and there's a certain prejudice that persists, persists to this day, I think that is changing. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the technology is, there's a level of technology that's been very good in this area in terms of like gesture control or, or voice activated control that can certainly be utilized. Um, but in terms of just even just a basic kind of web <laughs> interface, uh, you know, I'm you know, proud to say that we're pretty much the only company I've seen out there do provide the level of accessibility that we are. I, there's a lot of tours or a lot of solutions that are based on what, what I call the, the, the classic uh, separate but unequal solution. Separate but, <laughs> right? separate but unequal, right? right? Right. So it's like they provide some level of accessibility to the experience, but it's not a commensurate experience. The, and we have taken great strides to kind of correct that and what, you know, we're trying to offer solutions that uh, allow people the same experience as anybody else. And that's, I think, very important. You know, I, I came up with a, a kind of a basic governing philosophy of what we do, and that is simply uh, that virtual space has become public space. And yeah. public space must be accessible because or else you're dealing with inequality in a, on a very real level within you know, society, because a lot, you know, as the metaverse, from what I understand of it, becomes more and more developed. I mean, it's not just going to be gaming or even virtual experience. There's going to be levels of kind of everyday interaction that people are going to utilize these digital environments for. Uh, you know, employment being an interesting kind of look at it, because, you know, right now, uh, you know, the level of unemployment of the disability community is well over two times what it is for uh, people who are not disabled. And, you know, one thing that could happen is these emerging tools could be used to help, um, you know, bring that more into line, you know, provide opportunities for people to work in a way that uh, would not discriminate against them. So in terms of the virtual tour space, what was interesting to me is I, I realized as we started this, that there was some effort and some energy being, being put towards, you know, basic website accessibility, at least establishing some kind of guidelines, but that virtual tours were, were sliding into this kind of gray area where even though it in itself is a web experience, exists mainly in, in an iframe on a website. So it was that yeah. people weren't going, oh, well, well, those should be accessible. Now, the work we're, we've been doing on, uh, with a couple of major colleges and universities here in the, in the States has been very informative because, you know, they realize being public-facing institutions, 
that their use of these virtual tours is is got to have the level of accessibility that they don't currently have, and that's why we've had some very interesting discussions along that line. Right. Yeah, I mean, really, you know, because this is we're on a podcast called "What the F is the Metaverse?" Because <laughs> we're not none of us really are you right. know, answering that question. We're discussing that question uh, and trying to create you know boundaries around that discussion and and you know this i think folds into the overall discussion about an ethical framework i mean right. apart from again the market aspect which is huge and all the fact that there's a, a huge number of people that need this kind of accessibility uh just from a pragmatic standpoint and a market standpoint there's also just the ethical standpoint of you know the metaverse if it's going to be truly human which is of course sometimes that sounds like an oxymoron you know uh the the humanness we bring to the accessibility, the, that aspect of it and to the story of it uh, is really critical. Uh, it's at, at doing that at the beginning, as opposed to a, something that gets laid on later and people can complain about it. You know, it's, it needs to be embedded in that, you know, initial ethical framework, I think, uh, apart from all the other business aspects. I, I, I think so too. I mean, it's, you know, our philosophy has always been, basically technology in service of a human need. Right. Uh, you know, early days when we were basically presenting our idea for the Hollyhock House tour, uh, that came about because there was a very, you know, the city of Los Angeles had created a four-year restoration of this very significant piece of architecture that was on its way to becoming a UNESCO World Heritage Site. They had a very publicized, very expensive long-term restoration because it was an historic house, they could not alter the house. The house itself is the piece of art. They realized that most of the house was not accessible to people. So they were looking to find solutions that would provide uh, an experience for people who could not physically access uh, most of the house. And so we came up with our basic governing philosophy of you know having a commitment experience, not a, seg a segregated experience. And we were up against a couple of very sexy, uh, you know, VR companies who did massive uh, games and that type of thing. They were fantastic on one level, but, you know, it was all about, you know, kind of separating the person in the wheelchair, putting him in the corner, strapping a headset on him, which I thought was a very isolating, potentially isolating experience. And also at that point, you know, the game engines still, it still had a kind of a look of being rendered by a game engine. And we were uh, focused on making it as lifelike as possible. So we used extremely high resolution photography, all that type of thing. Well, that's interesting because you, you actually had to move away from virtual reality technology. And you're, from what I, what I understand, your experience is a virtual experience, but yeah. it doesn't have to be in a headset that you strap on and put on. And I think that's a lot of experts are... You know, they're concerned with, with, you know, a lot of specifically in virtual reality, it's very geared towards sighted hearing people. It's very yeah. visual, <laughs> auditory. Sure. And then also yeah. you have to usually use controllers with a lot of buttons on them. And the hand tracking software right now is geared towards people with use of all of their fingers. And so so what were some of the challenges you faced there? And then how did you overcome them? And it, and it sounded like you're, you're almost like reverse engineering the virtual experience to make it less about the 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 headset what were some of the challenges there and then how did how did you solve them well i had two th initial thoughts uh about the headset you know i 
personally do not come from a, a gaming kind of reality, right? I've always been someone who's used technology for very specific purposes. When I was a recording engineer, embracing early digital recording technology, it wasn't because I was a computer guy. It was because I was a recording guy who then utilized this tool that became available. And so I we pretty much viewed the technology as that. And, and looking at my own personal experiences with headsets, in my opinion, they were not at that point, and I don't think really now, maybe that they're a bit better, but no, they're they're still not they there. were just not at a point where um, I think it would, where they were usable in a way that was going to be comfortable and a positive experience. You know, um, and also the real uh, hard reality is a lot of people with disabilities have issues in headsets because of you know, there's a dizziness factor. I mean, there's it. It just became. A, quickly realized uh, that it wasn't going to be necessary the solution, even though we, we kept ourselves open for as things evolve, as the technology evolves, what we're doing can be adapted for that. But for this initial build that we were doing, we decided to move away from basically headset-based experience. Also, we felt it was it was isolating in a lot of ways. One of the names of our company has inclusivity in it, and we wanted Basically, the person who had the disability or might have been in the wheelchair it should be in the house. In this case, it was a historic house or a museum or any space, them to be able to experience the space on site, but also virtually for places in it that they couldn't experience. So we wanted them to be with everyone else and have the common experience. And then when they reached a, a space that they could not, a part of the house that they could not access, to then access it virtually. So it was a kind of a co combined real and virtual experience, doing that without a, a, a headset. Also, you know, I'd been to a couple of public events that were, especially art events, were utilizing, you know, various levels of the headset thing. It just seemed like it would be a nightmare at that point, especially on uh, sterilization. sterilization. And, and also we wanted to render it is like said as realistic as possible so if if there's a library in the house and there's a shelf of books across the room a person who could walk up to those books would be able to read the spines of them and we wanted to make sure that a person who was accessing that room virtually would also be able to basically uh have a high enough resolution to read the spines of the books once they zoomed in that was our kind of bedrock guiding principle. So it took high resolution photography right. to construct that virtual model then, essentially. Yeah, yeah. extremely high resolution. Yeah. So, I mean, we were delivering even uh, over an LTE network, basically 24K resolution. Wow, that's that's, so, that's very but, high veracity. <laughs> but, so but, so we've, we're certainly open to doing more of those experiences or those highly customized experiences, especially for, you know, historic places, that type of thing. But you know, in terms of what's out there right now, in terms of the mass adoption of, you know, 360 experiences, especially with a, a 3D component, a spatial component, like a Matterport tour or something like that, we wanted to make sure that we had a tool that could be utilized with any of these platforms that would make those platforms accessible. Yeah. And so they give people the option. Well, I think, look, there's, there's, the, there's the more, you know, day-to-day -day opportunities there that you're talking about. And they're there and there's that's a huge thing in and of itself but there's also this larger issue of making the interface of the human interface of the metaverse comfortable 
for everyone. And yeah. I've, I've, you know, I've talked a lot about the idea that comfortability in virtual experience is one of the biggest hurdles. And of course, headsets sort of define uncomfortability right. <laughs> in many ways. And when you're talking about comfortability for people at all levels of ablement, all levels of, of ability, you know, that, that brings that question to, you know, to almost a philosophical standpoint, uh, writ large, you know, you need to really think about it in the context of humanness across the board of what that means. And that's that, again, a front end consideration of this medium that is unique in history. Well, it, very much so. Look, I mean, it's once again, my our friend Dan, who's been such a great guidepost for us as we, we do what we do. You know, his concept of it was, you know, basically you're looking at a gate, and the people who build in digital environments could put a gate in that allows everybody to enter into these environments and experience them and be able to benefit from them in the different ways that they can. You know, they could build that gate or they could just have it as a wall. So it's, you know, it, philosophy has always been about those kind of ethical con concepts you're talking about. You know, there's a lot of a lot of people out there, the companies who are, look, you know, there's a, a legal issue that is going to is starting to come to the play. And I understand people's consideration of that. But for us, it's never been about don't get sued. You don't want to get sued. Right. It's, it's about let's let everybody into this space, because if we don't, then I think we're, we're in a lot. Of well, trouble. there's probably going to be legislation that as things standardize in the metaverse, we're not any we're close to that right now. Right. But uh, that probably there'll be legislation or at least regulations from governmental bodies uh, in different parts of the world that are going to, and you said, uh, you talked a little bit about Europe already having some of those in place, right? Yeah, yeah, the UK does. And I think there's, you know, different companies, countries in the EU who have a little bit more consciousness about this. I mean, I was surprised that, you know, there's still companies here being sued uh, because their web, basic websites are not constructed in an accessible manner and you know domino's pizza i think had to sell a lawsuit a couple of years ago because you know people who needed digital accessibility couldn't order a pizza online and that's a simple thing in a lot of ways but if you take that out into you know the the avenues that i think that digital environments are going to be part of everyday life yeah and, and interaction and then they'll it will also start to have real i believe economic in, uh, consequences for people who are unable to participate within uh this kind of digital society that is eventually you know in a way what we talk about you know what the metaverse is or is becoming is uh, I think a, a couple of good words to talk about is a digital society. It's a digital society that's outside of the real society connected to it, but yeah. has different tenets in some ways. And that's, that's a big, those are big questions to consider as we were constantly talking about here, which is as this thing emerges, as it's being birthed, we need to really consider these longer term issues. And I think accessibility and inclusivity is, is of course, at the forefront of those those considerations. Well, I think some of the problems that, Greg, you brought up uh, also highlight how, why a lot of companies are focused on augmented reality instead of virtual reality. And, and Mark Zuckerberg has talked a lot about the metaverse and, he's, and his divisions are really focused on virtual reality today, even though they have a lot of AR in the pipeline. But meanwhile, Snapchat and Google you know, Google shuttered its VR 
uh, Daydream project a few years ago. They're going to probably reopen that eventually. But Google is now focusing first on augmented reality. Snapchat is focusing first on augmented reality for, for years. And actually, there's a lot of accessibility so- solutions that are already implemented into augmented reality, sure. such as uh, the Google I.O. presentation. They had very thin and lightweight glasses that could be put on someone and and then you could automatically translate text in in real time so if you couldn't be able to hear it could automatically translate anyone was saying and then visually display it uh, over reality but in a very in a very lightweight way and and you know that's that's something and then also snapchat's been working uh on filters that automatically transcribe asl and, you know, basically, so you can actually transcribe sign language in real time to to kind of bridge that gap. And those are very small steps, obviously. Oh, there, you know, there's a lot of other the, the the span of there's so many disabilities to, you know, that especially physical mobility related ones that doesn't address. But it, but even even with that, the you know, what one reason you didn't use headsets, it was it was kind of constraining and clunky to put on. But a lot of augmented reality tech can be a lot light a lot more lightweight and even though that is that technology isn't really here yet there's you know you have right now you have to use augmented reality on a phone or a tablet but even then i mean that's the phone or a tablet is something that can be used in a lot more situations right now and then eventually with sort of this glasses technology what do you think the future of augmented reality is in terms of accessibility well, I think all those examples that you just cited are, are fantastic, and I've seen you know some levels of some, a lot of those. I mean, there is a lot of great accessibility solutions being being created. You know, wh- what's interesting is you know you're talking about you know Google sh- shuttering their VR, and but they have Google Street View, and they also have they also have probably right. thousands of virtual tours throughout the world, and so yeah. It's interesting. People are utilizing kind of like these ways to virtually visit places, and they don't realize that that's actually virtual reality. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not virtual reality doesn't necessarily have to be immediately. You know, being in a virtual environment with four other you know uh, people from different uh, you know locations or a headset or or headsets. I mean, yes. So virtual reality is being used with. Yeah, throughout the entire world right yeah, now. Which is why I call it virtual experience because yeah. AR, VR, MR, all the R's, yeah. I've said this many times, are all, you know, it's confusing between, I believe it's all on a continuum. It's funny, you say, you know, now there's, you know, Meta is focused in VR right now, but they're going to be focused in, I mean, this this shift back and forth of enthusiasm between AR and VR, I've now seen about 10 cycles on in right. the last five years. I mean, literally, it keeps going back and forth because I believe it's actually a continuum. I, I believe there's real, real good reasons from all kinds of levels, business-wise and marketing and everything, for AR to you know come to the fore fairly soon. Uh, but it's all a virtual experience. It's all experience of some aspect of the digital twin or of something we're we're you know layering onto the real world as a, a potential aspect of the digital twin. And so all of these things, you know, it's it, these these. Jargon words like AR, VR, they all actually start to confuse when really it's all just virtual experience delivered in slightly different modalities and sometimes radically different modalities. All of it needs to be accessible. I believe that accessibility question 
pivots into the question of comfortability overall for our experience of, as Greg said, the digital society that is that is coming about, which really, in a way, that's one of the better phrases about what the metaverse will become that I've heard, the digital society, because it's there's going to be so many ways we interact with that virtual digital society, and we're, we're just now tracking them and starting to see how they synergize together. One of the things I wanted that to... Uh, you know, uh, our discussion on this to bring to is because Greg's also, you know, a, a master musician and has done the composing of uh, the songs for me and uh, score for many of my films. Um, I wanted to you know, talk about some of this AI generation of content, including music, uh, AI generation of art, AI generation of characters. Now, of course, it's always in collaboration to a certain degree with humans. But uh, this is a big area that's going to be fueling a lot of, I, th I believe, creation uh, and even what you could call creation empowerment uh, on in the metaverse world, in the digital twin. Uh, and uh, there's some levels that that could be looked at as augmenting human talent, augmenting human uh, abilities to create. Um, but, you know, I also know that that, you know, as an artist myself and you're an artist uh, in, in a different medium, Greg, there's questions around that that we should talk about. What should, what are your thoughts on that? No, it's it's interesting because what we're what you're talking about is a different kind of creation. It's also it's basically curation yeah. uh, for most of these things. It's you know there's a, there's a lot of companies now that offer either you know AI generated uh, tracks or you can you know grab elements of this and and elements of that. There's the kind of chromogeny musician side of me <laughs> that's uh going well that's that's not art that's not music i think that's wrong um it's interesting you know i've someone who's been who's benefited from digital disruption you know when i got into scoring films it was kind of at the birth of kind of digital audio workstations and the ability and and, and sample libraries and such so on one level it allowed me to entryway into uh, a work environment that probably would have been impossible to break into or do some of the work even 10 years previous because I didn't have an orchestra at my disposal or, you know, so or I could scoring see, stage. Yeah, or, a scoring stage. So I could see, you know, you know, the, the great thing about technology and, and even this, you know, the AI aspect of what we're talking about is there's a democratization that can be positive. As someone who writes music and creates music, these tools We'll get you, I, I, I'm guessing, about 70%, what I consider 70% there. Mm -hmm. and, and Which is a lot. Which is a lot. <laughs> yeah. and, but, but the, and also, that's probably good enough for a lot of uses. A lot of use cases, yeah. A lot of use cases. So, but where that 30%, where that 30% lies is where I think the magic lies. And that's what, you know, it's. But humans are still, you know, it's, it's, parties, it, right? you know, I was in, I was in uh, Sydney, Australia a few months ago and we're down by the Harbor there. And there was a young man and young woman who were doing a little acoustic duo thing and they were singing and people were having a picnic and eating. And I sat there and had an ice cream and watched them for about 45 minutes. And they were very good, very talented. And what, re <laughs> what I realized is they, they did not play a song that was not more than, uh, or less than, uh, I'd say 35, maybe 40 years old. Started me thinking, what is it about a piece of art or a piece of music in this case that gives it the kind of resonance on a on a human level, an empathetic level that 
allows it to translate to generations. What right. is it? What right. was the human element there? And um, I think that AI generated music won't be able to do that. It, right. it, it could it could give you something that would serve a purpose, but it seems like it's fairly disposable. I still keep my hand in of uh, working with uh, artists, uh, some you know, older my age and also uh, some very talented younger artists. And I'm getting ready to do an EP with a very talented young singer-songwriter. And I wanted her to have the experience of being in a room with a drummer and a bass player cutting the rhythm tracks on her songs. Right. And because the organic experience. The organic experience because there's also a communication of people experiencing literally time together as they construct music that I think imbues it psychoacoustically, spiritually, somehow, that creates something that um, has the ability to touch the human soul a little bit more mm. than um, something that's generated based on, you know, very, very, very smart algorithms, you know. Right, so, right. Uh, well, I, you know, I think, I mean, I, I, Jen, I want to hear what you, your thoughts are on this because I just brought it up. But I'm just going to place my position in this is I think there's a lot of experimentation that needs to take place. And I'm going to be working on projects that experiment with this idea of human-machine uh, collaboration because without experimentation, we don't know what the limits of it are. We don't know how it can be negative or positive. We just have to play with the silly putty of this a bit. And as I'm starting to play with some of those tools, uh, specifically more in the visual realm and the musical realm, uh, they're, they're quite compelling. They're quite almost addicting and fun. And I think a lot of people will have a kind of creation experience that democratizes the creation experience, uh, but I also agree with what you're saying about that ephemeral nature of human collaboration in art. So there's a lot of dichotomies, a lot of a lot of paradoxes inherent in even playing and, and experimenting with this stuff. What do you think, Shannon? Well, yeah, it's interesting to to get the perspective of a lifelong musician who, you know, Greg, you know, I know you you well and you you've really practiced the craft of playing guitar, keyboard, also the digital software, Pro Tools, all the instruments that that you're that you know. And so it's interesting to hear your perspective in this time when there's all these new technologies that are coming out, new types of AI creation tools. And the big the big piece of, of news that that just kind of landed a few weeks ago was not about AI music, but AI images. And this will eventually reach music, but it was interesting it was a, a company called OpenAI. And this is a company that developed something called GPT-3, which is this uh, writing software. It, it was yeah. an AI writer that would write in, in, and you could not, it was really hard to tell the difference between human writing and this GPT-3 writing. Uh, sometimes it was a little bit nonsensical, but this is just the first version or, you know, sure. an early version. And it was amazing what it can do, create a truly original writing that's never, you know, not plagiarized. You could Google it. But what you do is you put prompts. So you say, give me a, an essay about the how the sun interacts with the solar system. And GPT-3 will generate a whole essay for you that's completely unique and sound very close to human. Now, the fact checking part of it is not quite there yet. Sometimes you would say things that aren't yeah, actually yeah. factual. Well, I just, yeah, but, I then, just heard... but then the next step of that. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. You no, no, no. I'm just going to say I just, heard, I just uh, read an article in The Atlantic, uh, which talked about that exact software was being utilized to create, you know, disinformation essays, politically 
by those disruptors out there that want to disrupt, you know, dem democratic processes, and that they could, you know, you could put just a a, a sub subject line and it would it would crank out 30 different essays on that subject line that sounded like they were from people of that ilk, and then just could flood the marketplace with noise, as Steve Bannon said, flooding it with, you know, SHIT. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, there's that 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 concern around this software, and yet I think it's also something that could be tremendously empowering to humans, just like every single technology that's come along has had its downsides, its its negatives, it's, you know, it, it created uh, a lack of and, and disadvantages in certain areas, but it also created a tremendous freedom in others. And so this is just the paradox that happens whenever emerging technologies of this level of, of impact start coming into into place. Oh, yeah, that, that's interesting on, on a use case of, of it. And, I, and I, the, the use cases I've seen, and there's tools that are services that are publicly available that are used for marketing purposes mostly. So a lot of the marketing copy that you might be seeing might already be generated by artificial intelligence or GPT-3. Um, one service I've used is copy.ai. And you can go and actually get a free trial and, and try it out for free. I think they still have that available just to see it, play for it yourself. And you can, you can have a different tone of voice and there's different like use cases, you can say, oh, I, I want it to generate a YouTube description for me. Or, or you can even put in a website and then have it generate marketing copy based on that website. And this is really useful for startups who, who just want to streamline the creation process. So that, that's what we've had for now almost a year. We've had this technology. And then a few weeks ago, OpenAI, the same company, released something called DAL-E. And DAL-E is a pretty mind-blowing image generation tool where you, in a similar way, you give it a prompt, you type in, I'd like to see dolphins swimming in the water on a, on a sunny day next to an island, and it will generate an original image that with dolphins swimming in the water yeah. and the sun. And some of the images that it's generated are definitely a bit uncanny. Sometimes it's very kind of psychedelic or sort of abstract strange. or surreal. Yeah. yeah, but but you can also put different styles. So you can say do it in an abstract style or do it in the style of uh, of a certain artist. Or yeah, this this, this a, all comes yeah. this all comes from this technology that's been around for a while that was much less sophisticated than that called style transfer. Style transfer technology which, you know, like make make this image into a Van Gogh style. Right. And yeah. those have been around for a while actually. Um but, but, this, but, but this actually creates an original image, oh, not I know. just applying I played, it. Yeah, yeah. I played with Dali. I played with Dali and also another uh, one that's in stealth right now, so I can't mention what it is, which is even more advanced than Dali in terms of natural language processing leading to image creation. It's actually the one I mentioned that I feel is almost addictive. You know, there's, there's an aspect of this that it's really fun to sure. play with a machine that actually make, does all this work for you to create something from a very simple input you have. And it also leans into the fact that most humans are lazy. I mean, the people that actually learn a craft and, you know, take that craft and embed it into a piece of wood with a tiny little awe that they scratch into wood to make a mark, piece of art, that's a very small percentage of people. But you can actually now do something that gives you a little bit of the thrill of that creation without doing much at all. And that's one of the things that 
you know, this augmented intelligence is uh, is allowing at this point. Again, there's a lot of questions around that. No simple answers. Well, it's, you know, it's, look, it's a tool. A knife is a tool that could be used to create life-saving surgery. Yeah. Or it could stab you in the heart. Right. So, I mean, it, it, you know, there's a lot of uses for these tools. Very, very positive uses for these tools. But, you know, I think it depends upon what you're looking to do with them. In terms of music or any kind of art, if, you know... One of the functions of that of an art is to is to express a human reality, and you know, I don't know if there's a way to AI your way around that. I mean, a perfect example is the you know the Beatles documentary that came out a few months ago. Yeah, you see these guys. I mean, at one level, the AI technology allows you to be in the room with the 25 year old Beatles. Right, right? the imagery is amazing, and the sound uh, cleanup aspect of the AI technology that you're using is fantastic but you know there's also you know an hour and a half of watching these uh, these guys hammer through trying to put together you know these songs uh you know get back being the primary one or let it be that's the name of the documentary and, 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 get back, right, right. <laughs> and, and you go through and you just go through the artistic process with them and they're hammering and they're honing they're hammering they're honing, you know and and they eventually get to this thing that has existed you know, for 50 years now, which isn't really that long, actually, in the scheme of things, but will have longevity and has translates to, you know, multiple generations. I don't know if an AI generated piece of, I mean, I understand why it's a lot of fun. I've had a lot of fun utilizing the AI tools I've utilized. The stuff that you're talking about, Shannon, in terms of utilizing it to uh, deal with ASL translation or or uh, various assistive uh, technology, I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, that yeah. there, there's no doubt about it. But eventually, I think there has to be, at least in, in in terms of you know artistic expression, I think it only takes you so far, and. It's it's like it's 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 like a toy to play around with it in that you can put the Van Gogh filter on it, but you needed Van Gogh to go through the human experience that he did to get to the Van Gogh filter. To get to the Van Gogh filter. <laughs> well, but it's it's interesting, you know, because how these are actually made. If you actually go into how these artificial tools actually work, is they actually recreate the human brain in a, in a yep. way. That's you know that's the whole idea of machine learning is you're recreating the way that the human brain works, but in a, a digital setting, trying out uh, a thousand different a neural, things. A neural and, network. A neural right, network. yeah, the, the neural network. So just, just like the Beatles tried out uh, a thousand different things, that's what this software can do in, in an instant. And this is just the beginning of it. Right now, it's, to it's very rudimentary, and it's, it's still learning. It's still, and it's also a, a reflection of humanity. Like this, right. these, these are trained, they're all trained from something. They don't just pop up out of nowhere. They're trained off of what we've already written so that the GPT-3, I think it read like 10 to 15% of the entire internet to actually right. develop the, the, the ability to write like a human. And same thing with the visual, the, the DAL-E is it looked at images, you know, a, you know, huge amount of, of images to then be able to figure out how to do it itself and actually paint like, uh, you know, a famous uh, painter or an artist. And so that could be applied to music as well. But I think it's interesting. And I mean, you know, as a creative person myself who creates content, 
I don't think I, I agree with the sentiment, it, it, but I think it's actually going to enable even more creation. I think humans still have to be a part of it. The human still has to put in the prompt to trigger the the AI. And maybe there's a place where the AI will just do it by itself. But I think it'll, you know, it, I think at, at a core, it'll These enable are... <laughs> creatives to do more. It'll and to create more content. And it, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. But it, it's essentially like it's an exponential growth of, of content creation and in a new generation of how we actually look at creating art which will be interesting. That's the positive. I mean, yes, I think on one level it'll be, you know, these are great tools. And like you said, but there's a lot of just laziness going on where it's just like, you know, especially in you know the realm of media music, you know, where it's like, we want this kind of thing for our commercial. And it's just too easy to type in a couple keywords and doing that. But look, you know, it's, you know, it also takes work away from actual artists. Musicians, creators. I mean, there there are a lot of issues around this to consider. And yet I agree with Shannon in the sense that there will be an expansion of what art is, because always through through history, technology has expanded our conception and our perception of what something is, especially around artistic and creative uh, endeavors. And so it's, you know, I mean, cinema wouldn't exist without technology. It was completely formed by technological enablement. You know, so there, there's all these things that are a horizon factor for us that we can't see beyond. Right. And that's why I think there needs to be informed experimentation in the context of, again, trying to form the story around what this kind of augmented creation really means. Because it'll ask these deeper questions, uh, the metaphysical questions, the deeper questions of human process, you know, uh, you know, and at the same time, I think music is probably one of the more, you know, really specific examples of this, because there's something about musical collaboration happening in a moment, right. whether it's captured in, re- in a recording in that moment, or it's something that just exists in that moment for a large audience, that is ephemeral, that is something that's truly in the mystery of what it means to have a human experience. And so I don't know if they are, will ever get to that. I kind of agree with you there, Greg. But, you know, you never know. <laughs> yeah, I, look, I'm not I, I'm not close off to, you know, thinking any possibility is, is, is possible. And look, I, I, I like using uh, tools. I like new tools and they come along. I like, you know, I, I certainly enjoy that. But what I've been trying to do is find a way within my own process of utilizing the best use cases of these tools and injecting what I consider, you know, a human element into to create something that will have a kind of a connection, you know, whether it's a film score or any kind of piece of music or just a guitar track. Yeah. 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 I think that'll be the core of it. I think that, you know, as these tools, I mean, right now they're also rudimentary, but let's say 10 years from now, 20 years from now, yeah. or even 50 years from now, these are just going to get better and better. And so the, the role of the human will become, and, and this sounds, you know, it sounds wild, even to me, I don't, I'm not like all uh, like, oh, this is great. This is like, this seems very new and different way of creating. Well, so I, I don't know if it's good or if it's bad, but it just seems like the it's here. the inevitable yeah. the inevitable outcome of this kind of technology is we're going to almost be sort of like DJs. Like the humans are going to be the DJs that are and and that that ef- that ephemeral moments they're going to happen and they can happen with this artificial intelligence maybe even more so than humans because th- you can have a thousand different ephemeral 
uh, you know, generations happening in, in a moment, and then you get to pick which one that you actually prefer. And then the human can pick which one. So it just, you know, 10x or 1000x is your ability to have these ephemeral moments. Um, but, you know, and then also automation. I mean, gosh, this is going to affect not just music and content creation. It's everything from, you know, driver. And we've seen this throughout history, right? Where they're in a lot of industries, whether they're creative or or not creative, just kind of, you know, manual labor, where, you know, the the in, the in farming, like the advent of, of farming equipment uh, that harvests grains and processes them, that eliminated so many jobs and and but that it was just the 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 march of sort of of technology and you know whether and and, and the, those people found new ways of of existing and we had to kind of adapt to these technologies so you know i like I, i'm not necessarily it just be interesting to see it evolve and interesting to see how not only the creative industry, but every single industry, whether it's accounting. You said accounting. I said, that's not a creative industry unless it's my accountant. But uh, <laughs> I said, just kidding. Uh, no, well, that's I, what I mean, I, outside of creative industries. It's going to affect everything. Oh, no, it's, it it's going to affect everything. But, you know, I stubbornly kind of hold on to, you know, especially in my experience, you know, musical expression. And there's, this could translate to other forms of artistic expression. The spiritual element, that's the thing we'll be lacking, and, but, you know, because I don't think you can synthesize that. Um, you know, yes, you're, we're going to be, we're already very much into a creation, a curation, I mean, based society, and there's going to be a lot of content out there, but the desire to communicate something from your spirit and your soul and uh, that, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's like you, you could feed in, all the all the parameters of what a Paul McCartney song should sound like, and then believe me, I you know I know several of them, but there's probably thousands you could feed in, but that's never going to count for the fact that you know Paul's memory of being 12 when his mom died, or you know, or just things that are part of his human experience. You know, the time he played piano in the parlor for the family gathering that he's not even conscious of, but that everything filters through and becomes part of the, the spiritual expression that he's doing. So, well, what would Paul McCartney, what would Paul McCartney's music be like if he had a Neuralink, which is a device that Elon Musk is developing and there's other companies where they, they actually, there's a small threads that go into the human brain. And, you know, there's even non-invasive versions of this where, sure. you know, Meta has a wristband that can, it, it can basically pre preemptively do what you're thinking. It kind of reads your mind in, in a sense, and it creates a phantom limb in the virtual world. So it'd be interesting to see what Paul McCartney's music would be, it'd be like if, it, if technology was reading his childhood thoughts and well, they, you know, and, they, and look, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's wild. It's, it's almost like it becomes a new instrument, just like instruments yeah. are an extension of human dexterity, human uh, right. interface with, our, you know, with the real world through our hands and through our mouths and through our lungs, you know, I mean, and, and through our vocal cords, you know, th this can become another instrument it's not really separate from us as much as we may think it is and yet all the questions that we're bringing up here are the ones that need to be asked i mean I, it's funny most of these questions i feel like i've been asking in every single story i've ever told since yeah. uh i began as a professional storyteller so it's this techno mythology around what is the human machine difference how 
what happens when we become data, like the lower man, a man who became data, you know, what's, these are all the, the spiritual and deeper humanistic questions around this concept of what the F is the metaverse, you know? So yeah, yeah. It's not going to replace us. I don't think we could ever like recreate Paul McCartney, but, but there'll be a next version of that. There'll be the future of whatever this becomes and other forms that might be artificial or influenced by humans and, you know, but I also think there could be a disconnect movement as well. I think there's going to be oh, a big yeah. pushback for sure. from all oh, this yeah. stuff, especially the metaverse technology that become if if it becomes even more all-consuming. I think many people will want to get back to the basics, get back to you know, there's still people who want to garden and farm everything by hand and not use this mass production. But you know, they have to do it by themselves, though. They have to disconnect themselves from the larger ecosystem that yeah. we've built with grocery stores and they have to go and live in the countryside <laughs> and that's okay. And you know that, and it, but it, it, it's, it's this like, it's this disconnect movement. So we'll probably see that as well. And, and I, you know, many times I think that maybe is the more sane thing to do. Maybe it, I think for well being. <laughs> you know, maybe it I is often, better. To, I often have days where yeah. I think that's the more sane yeah, thing no, to do, it, even no. though we're embedded in this, but listen, Greg, you're the guest uh, today has been a great, uh, episode and what's your last uh, last thought for for our audience here on this episode of the of the of the podcast well it just comes back to what we were talking about in terms of uh equity because we are heading into a digital society we're already there it's going to be increasingly so whether there is a back to the earth movement or not and yeah. and and these tools can be used for a lot of good and a lot of benefit and they already are but we just have to make sure that there is uh, that there's equal access for everybody, that no one gets left out or left behind, and then you know together we can figure out the pluses and minuses and and the different uses. But everyone's got to be involved. Yeah. Period. Well, thank you. Yeah, know, I gotta I gotta thank you for for all the work that you do because I think able-bodied people, it, it's 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 a big it's very important for us to give voice for people with disabilities because for for so many years disabled people have been, you know, marginalized and ignored or, you know, or segregated. And, and it's something that doesn't get as much attention as it should. So I, I really, I'm proud of the work you do. And I'm, I'm excited to see how your company develops and grows. Yeah, me too. Me too, bro. And uh, time for the sign off. I love you, son. And I love you, bro. <laughs> I love you, bro. And I love you, nephew. I love both of you. And what I always say on the end of every podcast, now I can say directly to you, uh, Greg, thank you, special thanks to Greg Leonard for the theme music. <laughs> because not Greg Leonard- by AI. <laughs> not created by AI yet. <laughs> yeah. made the human-made music, <laughs> a novelty. Rate this podcast. If you, if you liked what you're hearing or you want to support, the best way is just to rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye.